like Tim said, uh, some of us got to enjoy a really nice bike ride uh, this morning. I don't bicycle like at all, and uh, it's nice that I'm a bicycler now. Uh, I think it's actually, I think it's something I'm going to lean into. Um, I thought about how funny it would be as if I uh, <laughs> if I preached this sermon and bicycling was just throughout the whole thing because I never <laughs> bicycle. But it's just who I am now. I can't help it. But um, <clears throat> it really was fun. And thanks to everyone who came out. And based on the success of it, I think we're going to do it a lot more, even just informally. Just um, we, we had a beautiful spot and ended up with great weather, uh, even though driving out there, there was some rain and I was getting nervous. I even ta- called Tim. I was like, Is this, what are we doing? And then it was all fine. Beautiful, beautiful weather out there. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks to those uh, who came. Something... Uh, I think I introduced a few weeks ago, or I, I pointed to, uh, is that our readings uh, that we heard uh, Buffy and Justin read uh, tonight, our scripture readings, we've been reading them uh, out of an actual Bible, whereas before we were, uh, people could of course bring their Bibles, but, uh, uh, but we would print out the readings, and uh, now, we're, now we're doing it from the Bible. This is one thing on a short list of things uh, that Paul gave uh, Chantel and I knew things and said, all right, do this, nah, and then left. Uh, and so we've, we've begun using the Bible, and of course, he actually did talk to us, and we talked about it, and it was, uh, we weren't forced into anything. But, um, and I know we were, we're still hearing from reading readers uh, throughout the week some of the difficulties of that, but I wanted to, uh, of reading from this Bible, finding the pages and whatnot, but I wanted to just say something I really love about it, something I really appreciate about uh, reading it from the Bible is I actually love that little pause that it forces before the reading. You know, the, the reader has to go up there and, and find the, the reading. We have it marked out for them, but it's, you know, it takes a couple moments. And I actually really love that pause because I think it, it helps us highlight that part of our service, the, the hearing of Scripture being read. Uh, we do this absolutely every service at Hilltop. Uh, we've never not um, heard Scripture read in our service. And we're so committed to doing that even that when we're in the time we're in now, ordinary time, where we're not necessarily going, uh, we haven't been preaching from the lectionary, we just went through a series together on the gospel. Even when we're doing that, we still hear our readings from the lectionary. We hear all four readings every single week, even if they're not going to be a part of the, the sermon, uh, because we believe there, there's something to that, um, that. We believe that when the church gathers, we, we hear the Word of God and Scripture together. And uh, so over the next couple weeks, as you, you hear those pauses, I hope uh, you'll take advantage of them and think about what's about to happen and, and maybe, to the best of your ability, uh, turn your attention to the readings, some of them very difficult that we give our readers. Uh, w- listen to the words that, that you're hearing. Because uh, we just went through a series, see, here at Wheatland we go through ordinary time. Uh, this is, we have a uh, Advent that takes us all the way through the se- season of Easter, and that's the life of Christ. And then the other half of the church calendar is, is called ordinary time. And there's still readings that go along with that time of the year. And at Wheatland, that's when we often will do a series that's not necessarily from Scripture. And so we just got done with one of those. We did a series on the gospel. Now we're going to jump back into our lectionary texts, and our, our teaching team thought it would be good to go through uh, the book of Ephesians, because that's what the lectionary does. It goes into Ephesians starting tonight, and it takes us through the book, uh, the letter, rather, and 
we decided it would be a, a good thing to jump into. And I actually, uh, I think it, it's um, serendipitous uh, that, that this happened. It wasn't planned at all, but we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians and we're going to consider what the church is. And this is really appropriate after we've considered for five weeks now uh, what the gospel is. Because the church is entrusted the gospel. We've talked a lot about the gospel, which has birthed something in all of us. But now we're going to talk about the place, the church, where we, after our, that birth, we grow, a place of growth. And so it, it's quite appropriate for us to, to, look, at, uh, to look at Scripture, um, to look at Ephesians and to talk about what the church is according to Ephesians. Another reason that this is good for us is uh, this gospel that we've spent five weeks defining. The church is the keeper of this gospel. And we're not the keeper of the gospel in a protective, like no one else gets to hear or read or know the story of Jesus. We're, keep, we're keepers in the gospel in that we are concerned with telling the story rightly. Well, we talked about that a little bit last week, that Christians tell the story of Jesus and we're very concerned with telling it rightly. And so in that sense, the church is the place where this gospel is embodied into, into a gospel culture. So tonight, um, may the words of, of Paul in Ephesians, for his former congregation, may they be made alive uh, for us as we examine our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the church is kind of like riding a bicycle. Uh, you, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing. Um, no, uh, jumping into Ephesians, and I do invite you to open your Bible. We heard that read once uh, from Justin already from Ephesians chapter 1. But I encourage you to, to have your Bible in front of you as we do this and, and poke around at it. Uh, with what we're talking about. So Paul helped equip this, this church at Ephesus, uh, and he was there for at least a couple years. This is a former congregation. And years later, while in prison, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. And unlike his other prison letters, we call them, or captivity letters, unlike those, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, uh, unlike those, Paul in, in Ephesus, to the church of Ephesus, he doesn't address a lot of specific issues. See, we, we can read uh, Philippians and see some specific issues that the church at Philippi needed to hear from Paul. And when we, when we go to Ephesians, we don't get as much of that, which is actually one reason why scholars think this is a, a circulatory letter. This is a letter that was for all the churches around Ephesus. It's not as specific to one congregation. But regardless, I, I think this is also helpful to remember. You know, last week we camped out at, in Acts kind of 2 in chapter 4 last week, and we saw this kind of idyllic, uh, image of, uh, of the church in Acts. And it's really helpful to know that you don't have to go very much further into Scripture to see a really messy church. <laughs> you see a church really messed up. Uh, it's not just uh, this beautiful, beautiful image we get in Acts, which is a helpful image, of course. But if you read these letters of Paul, you see Paul dealing with some pretty complicated things in these congregations. And I, that, that's worth noting, I think, for us tonight. So in this letter uh, to the church at Ephesus, it feels almost like, like Paul is using the church at Ephesus um, as an example or as a way to 
sketch the fullness and the beauty of what church is, what God's gathered body is like. Paul's looking at a church that has some maturity in it, it seems like, some growth. Some of you guys know uh, one of my students, Amos, uh, we've prayed for him. Uh, He comes to the youth group or came to the youth group rather when he was in high school. Um, He had a little girl named Malia. They were over a couple weeks ago and uh, got to finally meet uh, little Malia, which was awesome. And uh, I asked him about what having, you know, a little baby has taught him so far. And what he said was, he said, uh, well, you know, it's just crazy to see them grow so rapidly. You know, every day you're seeing this baby grow and you can track their growth and it's just mind blowing. But then he goes, he says, it's crazy to think that I'm growing at that rate every day as well. Of course, he didn't mean he didn't mean necessarily his body is changing that much that rapidly in the same manner as this, this his little girl, but that that because of the way life works, you're growing every day, or at least you're experiencing new things every day. You're changing. Hopefully, you're growing, uh, but you're changing every day. And that was his his big takeaway. I was impressed, and I, it was really cool to hear him say that. And I want us to to think just a little bit about what I mentioned earlier: this uh, birth and growth. Jesus employs a lot of language uh, of birth, right? Uh, to be born again, to be born uh, from above. But with birth, we also have growth. And Christ desires for us to grow into Christ-likeness. Paul, certainly in, in all of his words, uh, all of his letters, he is very concerned about us growing in Christ. And I think this is essential for us to think about. Uh, especially coming off of our, our series, Thinking About the Gospel, that both are required. I think both are necessary for us, birth and growth. Um, we don't stop at birth, but we're to grow, um, even in our faiths. And I think the church is the means by which God gives us to grow together with one another. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books is called The Great Divorce. It's by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's one of the only books where I think I've truly read it countless times. I... I, I Love this book. I'm going through it right now with, with one of my triads, uh, with Gabriel and Steve from Hilltop. And uh, if you haven't read The, the Great Divorce, um, the, the super, super quick version, or is, it's, it's almost like Dante's uh, Inferno, where there's not much of an introduction. You're kind of, you're kind of the, the character, the narrator. And in fact, in Great Divorce, you don't even have a name given, but you're kind of that main narrator, and it's kind of, you're observing what's around you. And in the, in the book, uh, it becomes clear very cl- quickly that you are dead and you are a ghost of some kind. And you're on this bus and you're leaving this place called the Gray Town. And eventually you arrive to this valley, this big valley and a big mountain uh, that stands over it. And you're in this valley and they all get out into the valley and they look around and that's when you discover everyone is a ghost. Uh, you can see no one is a solid being. You're all ghosts, phantoms. And then... Uh, at some point, uh, they walk into the valley, and they see that that has consequences for how they experience their surroundings. So things that are more solid than them hurt them. So like blades of grass feel like actual like needles, like they can't walk on the blades of grass because they're not solid. Uh, at one point, the main, I think right when he gets there, the main uh, character tries to pick up a leaf, and he sits there and pulls with everything, and he can't get one leaf off the ground because it's solid, and, and he's not. Um, later, you see a, a character try to steal some apples and they can't get anywhere with them because they're too heavy because they're not solid. And, and throughout the novel, um, 
coming down from the mountain uh, comes solid people. And they're also referred to as the bright people throughout the book. And the solid people uh, each have a phantom that they're kind of assigned to. And all of the solid people are someone that is from their life, someone that they knew in real life in some way. And then from there, the book is about these solid people trying to guide these, these phantoms into the mountain. And a reoccurring theme throughout the entire novel is in these conversations. The rest of the book is you're just simply watching and listening to conversations between a bright person and their, their phantom that they're trying to help. And a common theme is these solid people keep saying, we know it hurts. We know that this atmosphere hurts, but you're going to get more solid. If you, I promise you, if you walk with us up this mountain, if you just begin this journey up the mountain with us, slowly as you go, you'll start to notice those blades of grass don't feel like needles in your feet anymore. And you'll start to notice you could pick up a leaf and your body will slowly get more, more solid as you go. And in fact, they keep referring to themselves. He said, look at us. Like I was like you when I arrived here and now I'm solid. This image of, of growing solid as you go uh, up the mountain, this image pops into my brain maybe once every week or so. I mean, I think this is a wonderful image for what it means to, to grow in Christ. Grow in, in the church with your church community. It's not easy at first uh, at all. The Christian life uh, is certainly not easy. But as you go, uh, you become more solid. It becomes a little bit more uh, enjoyable even to walk on the blades of grass and to experience the nature around you. And I think one way uh, that we are able to do this is because we see solid people. The existence of solid people really helps us. If we can see, oh, you were a ghost once and now you're solid, maybe if I can become that, okay, there's hope. I think that's another thing that the church, a gift that the church gives to us. The church uh, throughout time gives us examples of solid people. But not just the historical church, but the church today. Around this room, I really hope you can look around and see uh, some solid people. And be like, oh, man, they're, they're solid. Uh, they give me hope that if I continue down this journey, I'll, I'll continue to, to, to grow. C.S. Lewis, in another book, uh, uses this phrase, deep church. And he's referring to churches needing to have um, just historically rich ideas of the church. And what it is, is just acknowledging that uh, we're not inventing this. This thing, church, we don't get to invent it. And we're not inventing it. This is one of the ideas behind, you know, the line in the Apostles' Creed, communion of saints. We see that there's others before us, that there's a whole history of people before us. This idea of deep church. So the church reminds us that we aren't uh, lone rangers inventing this all as we go. In fact, we don't even get to invent it as we go. But... Many have gone before us on this path. This is one reason that we remember the communion of saints. Currently, I'm reading uh, the biography of uh, Eugene Peterson, who here at Wheatland we call St. Eugene. And just reading this guy's life, who I didn't know, uh, is encouraging me. Um, I'm seeing a tiny sliver of the communion of saints, I feel like. Another funny example of this, uh, as I prepared for the sermon, was uh, right before uh, Paul went uh, he gave me this book. He knew we were going to go through the book of Ephesians uh, later on. And he gave me this book and he said, you should use this. I had asked for a different gift, a send-off gift. Um, I had asked for a couple locks of his hair. 
which some of you will know is a Lord of the Rings reference. But, uh, and it was really interesting as I prepared for the sermon, um, I'm not that much of a note taker. Paul is a note taker. And so I'm, I'm reading Paul's thoughts. It's like he's haunting me. <laughs> I'm, reading, I'm reading his thoughts on the sermon I'm going to preach tonight. And I'm seeing his, his thoughts through these chapters and what he underlined and things he wrote. One part that I read, just right next to it, all he wrote was Tolkien. And I read that portion that it was next to probably 70 times. There's no connection to Tolkien. I think he's messing with me. Uh, but it really worked. Um, but that was a really funny reminder to me this week that we didn't invent this. Uh, that people have gone before us. Uh, we can try uh, to reinvent church as much as we can, but we will always be following people before us and the Holy Spirit uh, working through those people. So Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus with really these, these verses we heard tonight. They're a doxology. It's actually one of the longest sentences in the New Testament in its, in its Greek, and it reads very poetically if you read it. These first words, uh, this doxology uh, to God, it's giving glory to God for all that he's done. It speaks about what he's done for humanity on, on a cosmic scale. It starts out so, so big. We're going to talk about the Ephesian church, and yet where he starts is, is cosmic. Uh, he talks about all that God has done for humanity. He begins his letter uh, to them by, by zooming out quite, quite far. I think as far as he can go. But when he does this, he's mapping the church. He's showing them where they are in this story, in this map, this cosmic, on a cosmic level. But Paul's also, just like he's not afraid to speak in cosmic terms, he's not afraid to speak in, in ordinary terms or uh, quotidian terms. A word I only know because I came across it, uh, a book called Quotidian Mysteries by Kathleen Norris. I got a thumbs up. So it's a good book, a uh, very good book, um, very great writer. And uh, I didn't know what it meant before, and, but it means ordinary, you know. We're in ordinary time. We're in quotidian time. Uh, and we all know the rule. If you explain um, a pretentious word, it makes it not pretentious. You can just use it. And I explained that I didn't know it, and now it's okay to use it. So uh, Paul can work uh, in, these, in these letters. On a, he starts on a cosmic level, but he's also so good at getting into the ordinary, the nitty-gritty which is something I think uh, this, this series going through uh, Ephesians for us, I hope it will do the same. I hope that we'll be whipped back and forth uh, between cosmic words and quotidian words uh, and that we'll think about everything in between. I want to read, read our passage to you again in the words of the message. We'll stick with this St. Eugene theme. Uh, and I, I actually want to invite you to close your eyes as I read it, not to read along, but to close your eyes. And as I read it, I want you to listen for any time he says uh, we or us or even you, I want you to think about like this room, like think about it actually referring to us at Wheatland. And it's going to be on a cosmic level, but think about it referring to us. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Had settled on us as the focus of his love. To be made whole and holy by his love. 
long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We are a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all of our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on all the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This down payment from, the God, from God is the first installment of what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. What we find in these words is a blessing. It begins with saying blessed three times. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul begins with a blessing. And I, I got to say, blessing is one of these words uh, in Scripture, in, in Christianity, but even just in the world that I'm convinced uh, we all use, and we know what it means, but we, don't, we couldn't define it, <laughs> this word bless. We say, you know, bless you after a sneeze. Uh, we say, God bless you when we leave people sometimes. Uh, in marriage, you might ask the parents or the father for a blessing, like it's a thing they're giving to you. Can I have your blessing on this? We are told to count our blessings. And with all these examples, I, I think in all of them, we know what we mean, but I don't, I don't know that I could define the word blessing. It especially complicates it for me when in Scripture, in the Psalms, you know, when we, say, when we bless the Lord back. I, I can understand blessings as something he does to me, but bless the Lord, O oh my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. What am I doing when I'm blessing God? I don't, I don't know. And even in scripture, it's, it's kind of hard to define blessing. Eugene uh, Peterson has some really great words for us in this, and it's uh, up on the, oh, is there one before that? Thank you. You can't even probably read that anyway. But uh, the blessings begin in Genesis as God blesses Adam and Eve, Noah and Abraham, before we know it, the people who God blesses are passing on the blessing. Isaac blesses Jacob. Jacob blesses his sons. Moses blessed the 12 tribes. The blessings accumulate. And in the pregnant phrase of Gerald Manley, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, they gather to a greatness in the Psalms and they punctuate the language of Jesus. Of course, the Beatitudes are a good example of that. Blessed are... The language of blessing comes to a flourishing finale in Revelation. Seven blessings scattered throughout the, the text. They salt the magnificent apocalyptic poem. And in retrospect, flavor our entire scriptures with blessing. 
And then he goes on to say this. It says, We receive the blessing and absorb it into our obedience. It's not long before our language exudes what we are living. That last line, uh, I really think, pertains to us tonight. It's not long before our language exudes what we are living. Where our language feels like it's greater, (laughs) way further, than what we feel like we're living every day. This, to me, speaks to this cosmic uh, quotidian uh, spectrum. Scripture speaks of blessing in the sense of an inheritance, uh, as something that God gives to us and we in turn pass on to others. In verse 13 of what we just read, we hear that the inheritance that we have all received, it's defined uh, the Holy Spirit. We are all uh, received into the, the breath of God. We have the breath of God, the living breath of God, the Holy Spirit in us. That's our inheritance. And in, in the passage it's called the spirit is called an inheritance toward our redemption that we might live to the praise of his glory or as the message had said a praising and glorious life so paul imprisoned writing to this old congregation of his uh, he spent two or three years with he begins with this cosmic level blessing for them and he knows only too well that he he understands the ordinariness Uh, of their lives. He himself is in captivity. He understands uh, ordinariness. He understands not doing much. (laughs) He understands the ordinariness of church, but he also understands that that church has cosmic meaning. The language of this doxology and of this blessing, it exudes what we are living, but it and it exudes what they are living, but it reminds them of their growth in Christ and that what they're doing every day, it's also happening on a cosmic level as well as a quotidian level. So as we continue through ordinary time and continue through the book of Ephesians, I pray that that we can see what's happening on a cosmic level within our ordinary days. One passage I wanted to share from that book, uh, from Kathleen Norris, uh, is this. It says, The Bible is full of evidence that God's attention is indeed fixed on the little things. But this is not because God is a great cosmic cop, eager to catch us in minor transgressions, but simply because God loves us. Loves us so much that the divine presence is revealed even in the meaningless workings of our daily life. It is in the ordinary, the here and now, that God asks us to recognize that the creation is indeed refreshed like dew-laden grass that is renewed in the morning, or to put it in more personal and also theological terms, our inner nature is being renewed every day. Every day. She says, seen in this light, what strikes many modern readers as the ludicrous details in Leviticus involving God in the minutia of daily life, it might be re-envisioned as the very love of God. God's involvement with us every day in the here and now, in the ordinary, is an aspect of his cosmic love for humanity. As we do things like uh, ride bikes, which I do all the time, uh, as a church, when we do things as a church like triads, uh, when we do things like morning prayer, especially the mornings where it's really hard to drag yourself to it, uh, when we do things 
in our own lives, uh, aside from Wheatland, like uh, doing our dishes, um, like changing diapers, um, like driving to our job for the day, or driving home, or putting together our budgets. We, when we do this, uh, we're involved in the, the love of God. He is present in every single one of these. As we uh, at Wheatland think about our everyday involvement in the life of the church, both communally, what we do in here, but also what we do individually, may, may we zoom out every now and then and find God's blessing in it. That he's making known to us the mysteries of his will, and in so doing, giving us a, a life of praising his glory. When we zoom out uh, and think about the church on this cosmic level, this is what I think we'll find. One more line from Eugene Peterson, and this is, if you hear nothing else. When we, ca- when we zoom out like this, I think we find that the church is not what we do. It's what God does, although we participate in it. The church is not what we do. So whether it's a uh, glorious uh, worship session like we heard described in uh, 2 Samuel with King David today, or whether it's gathering uh, a few to ride some bikes, uh, church, this church is what God's doing, not what we're doing. We're going to enter into our time of uh, communion now, pray the prayers that prepare us, and I cannot think of a better example I cannot think of a better example of uh, the cosmic and the quotidian coming together in one act. Uh, Something so ordinary, like bread and a cup, has cosmic meaning. Uh, God's love is made known to us in this very ordinary act, and yet huge, overwhelmingly huge act that we get to partake in, uh, receive, every single uh, Saturday night.